Well, good morning, everybody. It's good to see you. There we go. All right. My name's Kyle. I'm actually the lead pastor of Rock Hill, um, but I normally preach over at the Lincoln Park campus. Um, so we are one church in two campuses, two locations, Lord willing, soon to be three. Uh, a month from this week, uh, February 5th, we're actually praying about and hoping to launch our superior campus over across the way. And so most of you I know, a lot of you I don't, and I get to meet today. So it's really, it's really good to be here. Dean and I have been brainstorming a little bit about how do we keep these churches feeling connected, and one of the ideas was from time to time doing a pulpit swap. So he's doing double duty today. He's got to preach twice, and I get to kick back and just do it once. Now, there's a lot of pressure because if I blow this one, there's no, there's no time to make up. There's no way to recover, so we just got to get it right the first time, okay? Would you pray with me, and we'll ask God to do that. Lord Jesus, it's, it's good to be here. It's good to worship you in this new year. It's good to declare that you are alive and that you are king, and God, everything about our lives we want to bring under your rule and under your reign. Lord, would you help me today to be helpful? As we open up your word Would you help us to not only understand it, but to love it and to be shaped by it as your people? Holy Spirit, would you speak through me or in spite of me, but would you speak today? I ask in Jesus' name, amen. So how should the people of God live within cities that don't worship and serve and love God? Cities like Babylon, like Duluth, like Superior, Hermantown. Proctor. Jeremiah 29 gives us an incredibly helpful framework for how we're to live as the people of God within a pagan city. We do so by seeking the peace and welfare of our city while seeking or serving a different king. We're diving back into the Thread sermon series after an Advent break and looking at now um, the prophets that spoke during the time of the exile. I don't know about you guys, I've really enjoyed the time in the thread as we've seen the story of the Bible all woven together, getting a glimpse of every book of the Bible, and they're so different, right? Like, who would have thought that Nahum would have so much practical application to us today? Or now Jeremiah, which is actually the longest book of the Bible text-wise, the most letters, now we see that it gives us a framework for how we're to live as exiles, So we've been in the prophets for a long time. Uh, The pre-exilic prophets is what Bible scholars would like to say. That just is a fancy way of saying the prophets that came and spoke to the people before the exile, before God's judgment fell on Israel and on Judah. But now we're going to look at prophets during the time of the exile when God's judgment finally fell in the form of Babylon, conquering the people of Jerusalem and taking them to Babylon. Here's a quick intro video that we'll show you.
yeah, in um, one minute. So let me just set the context a little bit for Jeremiah chapter 29. The prophet Jeremiah is now writing to the people that have been taken from the city of Jerusalem, their home, and now forced to live in the capital city of a pagan empire, the city of Babylon. Um, It's essentially a letter of instruction on how they're to live as the people of God in this pagan city. Now, Jerusalem and Babylon are real cities that that exist during this time, but they're also themes that appear woven through the narrative of Scripture, that Jerusalem, in many ways, represents the city of God or the city of God's people, the city that worships God and submits to God and lives under his rule and reign, while the city of Babylon is actually the city that is opposed to God, the city that rebels against him. Do you guys remember the story of the city of Babel? Actually, in Hebrew, it's the same kind of conjunction of consonants. Babel, or the city opposed to God that sought their own glory from God. And if you skip all the way ahead to the book of Revelation, we see that the city that is opposing God is called Babylon. All right, I just put it on a tee for you there. You guys are sleeping already on me. It's called Babylon. And so even though Jeremiah is writing to a specific time and specific context, these are themes that get picked up by the authors of Scripture to show the city of God, the city in submission to God, and the city opposed to God, the city rebelling against God. And so the reason that they're getting this letter from Jeremiah is that they've been getting conflicting messages from false prophets on how long they're going to be there and what they're supposed to do. And so in their mind, their question is, should we settle down because we're going to be here for a while? Or should we, like these other prophets are saying, just kind of hang out a bit because we're going home soon? Now, if they stay, should they try to remain outside the city as much as possible so as to not get tainted or stained by this pagan city? Or should they just move in? And become Babylonians. Do you see these questions? How they're relevant not just to 2,600 years ago when God spoke through Jeremiah, but they're incredibly relevant to us today as God's people living in cities that are often opposed to God. See, if you turn in your Bibles, one of the prominent themes in the New Testament is that we are to see ourselves as sojourners and exiles in this world. We are to see our lives in many ways like the people long ago who didn't live in their home city, but in this foreign pagan city that was not their true home. And so we, like the Jewish exiles, are in many ways learn how to live in the cities we live in by looking at how the people of the Old Testament exile were instructed to live let me just give you a sense of this. In, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, Peter, in his introduction, says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles in the dispersion. The chosen exiles that are now spread all throughout the Roman Empire in the dispersion. James uses a very similar introduction when he writes his letter. He says, James, a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, Greetings. So the, the people of God, often symbolized by James as the 12 tribes of Israel or the people of God, are now spread throughout the Roman Empire. Peter picks up this theme as he's writing to them, and we're going to actually go back to 1 Peter quite a bit because it's one of the themes. What does it look like to be a chosen exile? But he says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, you may see, they may see your good works and glorify God on the day of visitation. 
So here's the truth that we're meant to see about our lives. We, where we currently live is not our home. Our true home, our real home, the home that we long for more than any other place is actually a different city. If we're in Christ, it's actually the city of God where we get to be with him, but in a way that's different than it currently is. The book of Philippians tells us that we are citizens of that city, the new Jerusalem, and that's where our true allegiance lies, and that's what our hearts most long for. And so we're left with the same question they were left with. How should I live in this city today if it's not my true home? And that's where these instructions are remarkably helpful. It helps us to think, how do I live faithfully as God's people in the here and now in a world that is so opposed to him? Look at verse 1 again with me. These are the words of the letter of Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. So it tells us who's writing. It's Jeremiah writing on behalf of God. Who's he writing to? All the people who have been taken into exile that are now living in Babylon. And then verses 2 and 3 indicate when he is writing it, when all of them had been taken. There was a couple different exiles or a couple different times where people were taken from Jerusalem to Babylon. This is the last one. So uh, Jake already read this, but in verses 4 to 10, we see some incredibly helpful instructions. He says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your son and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you, and do not listen to the dreams that they dream, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. Now there's a lot going on here in these verses, but in a lot of ways, the instructions he gives them are pretty much... Live ordinary life. Live your lives there. Do ordinary things, but do them in the city of Babylon. Build houses, plant gardens, and eat their produce. Plant down roots in that city. You're going to be there for a while. Get married. Have kids. Find husbands and wives for your kids and have grandchildren there. Multiply. Do not decrease. Now, if you go to all the work of building a house... Or planting a garden. What does that say about your time there? You're planning on staying for a while, aren't you? You don't plant a garden if you know that in two months you're going to be gone. Why would you go to all the work? And so in many ways he's answering the question, you're going to be there for a while. Now why would he have to answer that question? Just a second. The other thing that he says is multiply there, do not decrease. That in many ways sounds like the initial command that God gave to mankind at the beginning of Genesis, isn't it? When he talked about their role in the world, he said, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. This is repeated again to Noah after the flood, that you are to multiply and fill the earth, rule over it and subdue it. And now God says to his people, even in this horribly corrupt city of Babylon, I don't want you to decrease there, I want you to increase there. Why? 
Because God's plan from the very beginning of the story is to fill the earth with his glory, glory reflectors, his image bearers, those who, who show him off to the watching world. Now that isn't all of them. We, we see that many have rebelled, but now God has called out a, a people specifically for himself that are going to reflect him to the surrounding nations. And so even now, as they are in the nations, as they live in the city of, of Babylon, he says, I want you to multiply there and show them what life under my rule and reign looks like. Now, why would God tell them to settle in and live their lives there? Isn't it interesting when we think about that, that have you ever heard someone say, why would you have kids and bring them into this world? I mean, this world is going down fast. Why would I want anybody else to experience that? Here now, as the people of God are in one of the worst cities imaginable, he still says to them, I want you to multiply. I have plans and I have purposes for you as a people. I don't want you to decrease. And so even though this world is challenging and hard and broken, we're actually called to get married and have kids and pass on the faith of what it looks like to live under the rule and the reign of God to our kids. And in so doing, we show the world what God is like. Now, the reason he has to say this of you need to settle down there you need to spend a while, is because there was a whole bunch of false prophets that were saying, you're going home. In, in chapter 27 of Jeremiah, Jeremiah has just told the people, you need to submit to the yoke of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, that he is God's rod or instrument of judgment on you, and so submit to him so that it goes better than it would otherwise. In many ways, they don't listen. That's why there was more and more people that were exiled as, he, as Nebuchadnezzar quelled the rebellions. But he, he ends up taking a yoke and putting it on his shoulders and acting it out, as it were. It was one of the things that the prophets did. It was prophetic reenactment. He said, you need to submit to the yoke of Nebuchadnezzar. But then in chapter 28, there's a false prophet by the name of Hananiah who comes along. And this is what we read in verse 10. Then the prophet Hananiah took the yoke bars from the neck of Jeremiah the prophet and broke them. And Hananiah spoke in the presence of all the people, saying, Thus says the Lord God, now, when you say that, you better be darn sure that what, God, what you say is what the Lord God says. Hananiah stands up and he says, Thus says the Lord God, Even so will I break the yoke of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, from the neck of all the nations within two years. But Jeremiah the prophet went his way. So here you have, see if this sounds familiar, false prophets telling the people what they want to hear, not what is true, he says, don't get comfortable, you're coming home soon, which would have been a really warmly received message, wouldn't it? That's what the people wanted. They didn't want to stay in Babylon. They wanted to go home. But Jeremiah confronts him at the end of that chapter, verse 15. Listen, Hananiah, the Lord has not sent you, he says, and you have made this people trust in a lie. Therefore, thus says the Lord, behold, I will remove you from the face of the earth. This year you shall die because you have uttered rebellion against the Lord. In that same year, in the seventh month, the prophet Hananiah died. So God kills Hananiah because he is saying what the people want him to say rather than what God has actually said. I'm sure glad that doesn't happen anymore. And yet we see that's the case all the time, right? Lots of people stand up and seek to change what God's word clearly says because it's uncomfortable and runs counter to our culture. There's lots of people who 
will say, thus says the Lord, in order to curry favor, not because God actually said it. And what do they say? Generally, they say what people want to hear, not necessarily what people need to hear. In James chapter 3, verse 1, this verse is always weighty when I read it. It says, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. See, when we open up the Bible and we preach it, in many ways as preachers we are saying, this is what God's word is saying to you. Now when we do that, we better be darn sure that that's actually what God's word is saying. Otherwise, God, who has a way of wanting to preserve his glory and the truth, has a way of uh, dealing with that, shall we say. See, what we're doing when we're preaching God's word is in many ways we're claiming an authority that's not our own. Right? We're claiming a divine authority so that when someone says, this is what God's word says, or this is what God says, there should be a weightiness to that among his people. You would, have think that, you would think that we would have learned our lesson by now and not to attribute to God what he didn't say. To attribute to him something he didn't say is a terribly frightening thing to do. Look at Hananiah. But just as in Jeremiah's day, so also there are people that will stand up Many of them are found on YouTube. Many of them are found around this city who will claim to speak on God's behalf and utter lies, leading people away from the truth into a bondage that they claim is freedom. Do not listen to them. And if that's ever me or Dean saying what God's word doesn't say, do not listen to them. We all submit to a higher authority that has been revealed to us. Now, how does this work out practically? I think practically speaking, it means that the things that the Bible is really clear about, we stand up and in a really clear way say, this is what God said. The areas where the Bible is less clear, we should speak with a different weight. You should hear things like, my best understanding of this is... Or this is what I think it means. Do you see the difference? you hear the difference? In our city groups and in our Bible studies, we should use the same type of language where the Bible is clear and it can't mean anything else. We should say, this is what God's word says. And we shouldn't hesitate to call people to obey that, to believe that. In the areas that are a little less clear, our language should reflect that. Now, you would think that after Hananiah got killed, that people would think a little bit differently about prophesying what people want to hear, but maybe isn't from God. They didn't. All you have to do is read the end of chapter 29, and you read about a guy named Shemaiah doing the exact thing that Hananiah had done. He writes a letter to the high priest that says, can you believe this Jeremiah guy? He wants us to build houses and settle down. Why don't you rebuke him and shut him up? That's your job as a priest. Sometimes God tells us things that we don't want to hear. But that, my friends, is actually good news. Because it reflects reality as it actually is. Jeremiah is delivering hard news, but good news to the people of Israel. And God's word does the same for us. 
God tells us what reality is like and how we ought to truly live. Now, I think one of the signs of maturity in a follower of Jesus is that you begin to trust God's word more and more and more, even the things that you don't initially like. Because you see over the years that God's word is actually true and that God's word is good. It's good. His law is good. He is inviting us to live the way that we were created to live. This is not something to be rebelled against, but rather something to embrace as good news. And the fact that it runs counter to what our culture often says should sometimes be good news for us. Because look at our culture right now. We're not doing very well when it comes to marriage, or sexuality, or forgiveness, or violence, or justice. All the things that the Bible speaks fairly clearly about. See, the parts that are controversial to us are different than in other parts of the world. And yet, shouldn't that remind us that God's word is actually not human in its origin, but rather divine, and it should contradict every culture on the earth, at least in some way? God tells us often what we don't want to hear, and that is good news. Remember that the people of God were supposed to show the nations what God was like. This was the blessing that God gave to Abraham all the way back in the book of Genesis, that through you all of the families of the earth will be blessed. But the problem with the nation of Israel that we've seen, the reason why God had to bring judgment upon them, is that they actually, rather than reflecting the goodness and the character of God, began looking more and more and more just like every other nation of the earth, right? That's why God sent prophets to warn them, to call them to repentance, to call them to covenant faithfulness, not only for their own sake, but also for the sake of the surrounding nations, that they would see what God's character was like. They would see who God is, but they don't turn back. And so God, to vindicate his holiness, ends up bringing his judgment down on his own people. And then something interesting happens. Rather than being sequestered off in their own nation, they end up now in the pagan cities, spread all throughout the empires. And God says through Jeremiah, make lives for yourself in Babylon. Build houses, plant gardens, have children. You're going to be there a while, but you won't be there forever. He says you'll be there for 70 years. Make it your temporary home, but don't make it your permanent home. That sounds a bit familiar, doesn't it? As New Testament followers of Jesus, we are to live here in this world, but this world is not our home. Our home address might be in Duluth or Proctor or Superior or Rice Lake Township. And in part, it feels like home. But the reality is, no matter how much it feels like home, it isn't our true home. Guys, don't you feel that at the holidays when you long for home? You long for place, and you go, and it never fully lives up to the expectation. You never fully have that Hallmark Christmas that you dream about. It never feels like, yes, and your soul truly rests. You get glimpses of it. It's because you're created for something more, for something bigger. One day you will get to go to your real home with Christ. So what do we do in the meantime? In the meantime, we live ordinary life, but we live it differently. We live our life under the rule and the reign of God, even though we live in pagan cities. 
We display the impact of the gospel on our lives, living under the rule of King Jesus, and then our posture toward the pagan city changes. See, in verse 7, many people are surprised at the posture that we have toward the city we're in. He says, Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. God says we're to seek the welfare of the pagan city that we're in, because in its welfare we will find our own welfare. Now, depending on how you're wired and how much common grace you think exists in the world, even though it's broken, you probably lean toward one of three errors, and maybe not always at the same time. Uh, The three errors, I think, in our posture toward the city are overt opposition, accommodation, or complete withdrawal. They're not in the text. I made them up. Okay, This is me saying, as we've interacted with our culture, here, here are some of the errors, I think, that we have. Overt opposition is deliberately setting yourself up against the city where the world is always wrong, always evil, always leading us astray. Therefore, our posture toward our pagan city is always one of opposition. You met someone like that before? Yeah? Where they're just caustic in nature, always fighting about everything? I think that's one of the errors, because he says, seek the welfare and the peace of the city. Which often leads, I think, to the opposite error, which is accommodation, where we simply become Babylonians. We begin to pattern our life not after the rule and the reign of God, but after the city that we live in. And there's nothing different. This is why God judged his people, because they weren't distinct. They weren't holy and set apart as he called them to be. Now, the third error, I think, and sometimes depending on the cultural reality you're in, is is withdrawal. Simply just bowing out, tapping out, remaining so separate that the city doesn't even know that you're there. That wasn't an option for them here, but but sometimes we just kind of do that. We just like, time out, I'm going to leave. You guys, the world can go to hell in a handbasket, I'm out. This is the age-old question that we wrestle with all the time, isn't it? How should we relate to the world? Some Christians have either opposed or withdrawn from the cities that we find ourselves in, leaving very little witness. And often there's biblical warrant to do that. In particular, you're, you're drawn to passages from the Gospel of John or the letters of John that talk about the world and not having anything of the world in us. The world being opposed and against God, therefore we need to separate ourselves from the world. Others maybe fall into the opposite error of accommodation by quoting passages either like this or like from Paul in 1 Corinthians 1.9 that I become all things to all people so that I might win some and have a tendency to try to be too much like the world and to be cool in their eyes, for lack of a better word, that we begin to look like them. But here the... Awesome. Thank you for keeping everybody awake. Here we go. Eyes back here. You guys did that on purpose, didn't you? Kelsey's like, yeah, about the 20-minute mark, they're going to be nodding off. We're going to need something. But here the exiles are told to seek the well-being of the city, to pray for it, because in its welfare, we will find our own welfare. Let me ask you something. Who benefits from safe streets, Christians or non-Christians? We both do, right? Who benefits from a strong economy, Christians or non-Christians? Both. Who benefits from beautiful parks and places to be? Both. Who benefits from streets without potholes? People in other cities. (laughs) But not us. 
But in those cities, Christians and non-Christians, right, get to keep their cars together. So how do we seek the well-being and the peace of our city? Not by opposing it in every sense, but by living distinctly differently under the authority of a different king, King Jesus. This was the original mission of the people of God, that as they lived under God's law, God's rule and reign were to be shown in such a way to the surrounding nations that they would learn about their God, that he is beautiful, that he is good, and that he invites us to truly live. That life goes better when we listen to the author of life, but rather than showing the surrounding nations what God was like, they looked just like the nations. Sadly, you guys, sometimes the church is the same. In our effort to be relevant, we sometimes look just like the surrounding city. We talk a good game, but our values and our drives are the same. We're not living for the city of God, but rather we're living in the city of Babylon and we've made it our home. That's why God brings judgment Some of you guys are thinking, wait a second, Pastor Kyle. There's nothing distinctly Christian or Jewish about building a house or planting a garden or getting married or having kids. Almost everybody does that. You're right. But there is a distinctly Christian way to do those things. And it looks very different than the world does. And you know what it does? It shows the world the good life. You know, every time we we send you from this place, we send you to declare the gospel and to delight in the gospel and to display the gospel. Guys, this is the gospel implications lived out, that life under the rule and the reign of King Jesus is good. And we show the world a countercultural reality that we invite them to participate in, that life under God's rule is good. That's why we're distinct. That's why we're different. And if we're not that way, we just become weird. The key to seeking the welfare of the city is not to set ourselves up in opposition to it. It's not to accommodate to it, becoming like the city around it, nor is it to withdraw at just time out. It's to live in it, seeking its well-being and providing a counterculturally different way to live life, a life that reflects the rule and reign of God. And so we live in the tension of neither overtly opposing in everything, nor withdrawing, nor accommodating, but living in the city differently. We are in the world, but not of the world, is what my parents' generation like to call it. We make it our temporary home, but we don't allow its talents to get too deep into us because our true home is somewhere else. Now, how long are we to do this? For Christians, we do this until Jesus returns. For the people reading this, 70 years. Verse 10, for thus says the Lord God, and these verses are amazing. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil. To give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. We love these verses, don't we? 
And we should. They're beautiful. But might I just express a little caution in how we interpret them and apply them to our own lives? We need to ask the question, who is this being written to? Is it written to me, or is it written to the people of God living in Babylon, wondering how long they're going to live there? It's written to them. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. And oh, by the way, you're going to be there for 70 years. Meaning that most of you will not get to go home. You'll die here in Babylon. Your kids will probably die here in Babylon, but your grandkids, on that day, they'll get to go home. In that day, then they will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. In 70 years from this, the Babylon falls. The Persians take over, and a Persian king by the name of Cyrus issues a decree that all of the exiles can go home. This happens exactly 70 years after the exile, thus fulfilling this exact promise. And in that day, not all the Jews choose to go home. I remember in our pastor meetings, Dean often shares, he's like, I remember the day when it was 70 years after my grandpa immigrated from Germany, and it hit me. I don't want to go back to Germany. That seems so foreign. Can you imagine being people who have known only Babylon, but hearing from your parents about a different city? A small group of them returned to Jerusalem and began to rebuild their homeland and their city. And the restoration that's promised here happens, but it doesn't happen in as beautiful way as they would have thought. They don't seek him wholeheartedly, and all is not restored the way they would have imagined, the way that seemed to be promised. Thus they're reminded that God's ultimate redemption promised here is still in the future. So what do you and I do with these verses? I mean, how do we understand them? They sound really good. We put them on little Hobby Lobby paintings. We put them on coffee cups, right? For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. And most of us don't think, yeah, in 70 years, I might die here. But I know the plans I have. It, you know, it just doesn't have quite the same ring to it, does it? Can we take this and apply it directly to ourselves? No. We can't. They're meant to be read in a historical context. Now, that might make the Hobby Lobby painting seem a little less cool. Can you imagine the scene of exile? You're going to be here 70 years. For I know I have the plans for you, <laughs> declares the Lord, to die here in this city. But your grandkids, they'll be all right. So what do we do? Why does this still elicit hope and longing in us? Because we see the heart of a God who makes promises and keeps them. God who promises his people hope and restoration. See, we can rest assured even in our exile that it will not be forever and that it will one day end just like theirs did. And that even though God will discipline his people, it is done with a heart of restoration and hope. He does not abandon his people forever but promises them hope and a future. Now, guys... What is our hope and what is our future? It's not going back to the earthly city known as Jerusalem. It's the new Jerusalem that will come down and be heaven. 
This is the riches of our glorious inheritance in Christ Jesus. Now, I deliberately didn't put this on the screen because I just want you guys to close your eyes for a second. And I'm going to read about our new inheritance. Now, you, you do have to open them again. Otherwise, I'll know you're gone. I want you to picture this. This is what God has promised to his people, his chosen exiles in 1 Peter chapter 1. This is from the New Living Translation. It just makes it come alive. Peter writes, All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is by his great mercy that we have been born again because God raised Jesus Christ from the dead. Now we live with great expectation. And we have a priceless inheritance, an inheritance that is kept in heaven for you, pure and undefiled, beyond the reach of change and decay. And through your faith, God is protecting you by his power until you receive this salvation, which is ready to be revealed on the last day for all to see. So be truly glad. There is wonderful joy ahead, even though you must endure many trials for a little while. These trials will show that your faith is genuine. It is being tested as fire tests and purifies gold, though your faith is far more precious than gold. So when your faith remains strong through many trials, it will bring you much praise and glory and honor on the day when Jesus Christ is revealed to the whole world. You love him even though you have never seen him. Though you do not see him now, you trust him and you rejoice with a glorious, inexpressible joy. The reward for trusting him will be the salvation of your souls. This salvation was something even the prophets wanted to know more about when they prophesied about this gracious salvation prepared for you. They wondered what time or situation the Spirit of Christ within them was talking about when he told them in advance about Christ's suffering and his great glory afterward. They were told that their messages were not for themselves, but for you. And now this good news has been announced to you by those who preached in the power of the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. It is all so wonderful that even the angels are eagerly watching these things happen. End quote. Brothers and sisters, if you are in Christ, you are a chosen exile, and you have been given such an incredible inheritance that even the angels watch eagerly to see what's going to happen on that day. And so how do I live faithfully as an exile in the here and now? By seeking the peace and the well-being of our city while living for another king. We don't withdraw from our cities. We don't declare war on our cities. Nor do we simply give up and accommodate to them. But rather we live as a little city within the larger city of Duluth, Hermantown, Superior, that prays for and seeks the well-being of the city all while living under the rule and reign of another king named Jesus. We do this as we wait for his return and his kingdom to come fully in power and our inheritance come due in Christ. The inheritance that we get a glimpse of now, but just a glimpse. See, even though God's promises to the people in the future, God promises the people this in the future through Jeremiah, 
they had to trust that he would bring it about. As they faithfully built their houses and tended their gardens, had kids and grandkids, all while waiting to be brought home. Many of them did not see the promise fulfilled in their lifetime, but some did. And that too is instructive for us today. Now, how do they deal with the tension that exists in that already not yet, in that waiting and that longing, but maybe not seeing it come to fruition? Well, one of the ways that they dealt with that tension was through a biblical prayer called lament, where they poured out their hearts and their complaints to the Lord in prayer, a way of bringing their disappointments and their challenges and their heartaches to God and placing them at his feet. Next week, we're going to look at the second book of Jeremiah. It's called Lamentations. It's only five chapters long, and it's filled with a lot of complaining, but faith-filled prayers. I would love for you guys to come back and join us for that. Maybe as the books get a little shorter now, you would want to commit yourself to reading that this week as you prep for next week. It's only five chapters long. And in some ways, it gives voice and words to some of the longings and disappointments of your heart. But it does so in faith.